0: As Jen shared earlier, Joy Harjo is our current United States Poet Laureate, and the first enrolled member of a Native American tribe to hold that position. Harjo began writing in the early 1970s as a college student, and in the decades since has published eight books of poetry, a memoir, and two collections for young audiences. Her latest poetry collection is titled An American Sunrise and was published this year. And I was interested to discover that the title poem in that book is directly inspired by We Real Cool, which is the most anthologized poem by Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, which Brooks wasn't totally happy with, but nevertheless has become her most famous poem. She was the first black person to be awarded the Pulitzer Prize and quite significantly, I think she won that prize in 1950. That's five years before the Montgomery bus boycotts, five years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. Brooks was the focus of our annual poetry um, service uh, in April. We Real we Cool, as some of you may remember from uh, your school days, it's only 24 words, uh, and Harjo uses that poem as a base that she expands into a longer poem. If you look in your order of service, I, I just couldn't explain this um Orally. So if you'll, if you'll, op- there's a white sheet in your order of service, and you'll, you'll see I've bolded. If you just read an American sunrise, it's not at all clear that that she's influenced by Brooks. But if you know Brooks's poem, I've bolded it for you. And so it's like a hidden Easter egg in uh, Harjo's poem. It's down that right-hand column. Uh, Brooks describes her poem as about seven pool players that she happened to notice one day at a local bar, and speculating as to their self-perception, she writes, and she wanted that we pronounced in a very particular way that I'll try, try to do some semblance of justice to. She said, we real cool, we left school, we lurk late, we strike straight, we sing sin, we thin gin, we jazz June, we die soon. That last line I think is particularly devastating in our age of Black Lives Matter, which is by no means a new phenomenon. And Brooks, uh, that line jazz June has been widely interpreted as about sex. When asked about it, Brooks would say coyly, coyly. that's actually not at all what I intended, but that's fine for you to read it that way. (laughs) So uh, so again, I've bolded this recapitulation of Brooks's poem by Harjo, um, uh, and I'll read that now. We were running out of breath as we ran out to meet ourselves. We were surfacing the edge of our ancestors' fights and ready to strike it was difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you were straight. Easy if you played pool and drank to remember to forget. So you see that reference to pool and uh, all of that from Brooks's poem. We made plans to be professional and did. And some of us could sing, so we drummed a fire-lit pathway up to those starry skies. Sin was invented by the Christians, as was the devil. We sang. We were the heathens, but needed to be saved from them, thin chance. We knew we were all related in this story. A little gin will clarify the dark and make us all feel like dancing. We had something to do with the origins of blues and jazz. I argued with a Pueblo as I filled the box with dimes in June. Forty years later, and we still want justice. We are still America. We know the rumors of our demise. We spit them out. They die soon. In resonance with those final lines of, of she as a Native American poet pushing back against this rumor of our demise, Harjo has said, my poems are about confronting the kind of society that would diminish native people and disappear us from the story of this country. And that's part about the whole 1492, we discovered America. You know, it's like, there's that old New Yorker cartoon that has um, a white person yelling at a brown person. That's all you can tell from the cartoon, go back to your country. You know, our uh, immigrants need to leave the U.S. And in the corner, there's a Native American saying, I'll help you both pack. So with some of that in mind, I invite you to hear one more poem with Harjo. This one is titled, For Those Who Would Govern. I don't think it's a mistake that she published this uh, in her first poem as U.S. Poet Laureate for such a time as this. She says, first question, can you govern yourself? Second question, what is the state of your household? Third question. Do you have a proven record of community service and compassionate acts? Fourth question, do you know the history and laws of your principalities? Fifth question, do you follow sound principles, look for a fresh vision to lift the inhabitants of the land, including animals, plants, elements, all who share this earth? Sixth question, are you owned by lawyers? bankers, insurance agents, lobbyists, and other politicians, anyone who would unfairly profit from your decisions? Seventh question, do you have authority by the original keepers of the land, those who obey natural law, and are the service of the lands on which you stand? This poem, these questions seem particularly poignant on the eve of Indigenous Peoples Day, which is celebrated annually on the second Monday in October. Indigenous Peoples' Day celebrates and honors Native American people. It is an intentional reframing, as Nicole was describing earlier in our story for all ages, uh, seeking to flip the script on the U.S. federal holiday of Columbus Day. An increasing number of cities and states celebrate Indigenous Peoples' Day. Relatedly, I was excited to learn that the new UUA Common Read. So each year, uh, the UUA, the Unitarian Universalist Association, selects one book. You know, if, if we had to pick one book for all UUs to read this year, what would it be? And the new um, book is *An Indigenous People's History of the United States* by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. That book actually came out a few years ago, but they chose it for two reasons. One, just this year, they published Beacon Press, and Beacon Press published a new version of that book, uh, An Indigenous People's History of the U.S. for Young People. So if you just want the shorter, easier version, you, you too can read that or buy for a young person in your life. Uh, I encourage you to read or revisit at least one of these books for our congregational conversation during the 1030A middle hour. I've actually scheduled it for Sunday, May 17th. You have seven months to get and read this book. Um, it was also chosen not only because that Young People's Version was just published, but because November 2020 will be the 400th anniversary of the 1620 landing of the Pilgrims and their relationship with the Wapanoag people. And our UU General Assembly next summer, summer 2020, is they intentionally put it back in Providence, Rhode Island, which is only about an hour from, from Plymouth Rock by car, as part of reflecting on and inviting us to reframe and reflect on that piece of history, which is very much still with us. And when I reflect on what it can mean to be in solidarity with Indigenous people's rights in our contemporary world, one of the first things that comes to mind is the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. Although the pipeline was eventually built, the nearly year-long effort was the most significant indigenous protest in decades. Before that, you really have to go back to like the late 60s, the early 70s. Any of you remember like the Alcatraz protest? Um, so, uh, or read the novel *There There, which is really powerful. That part, it's part of what it does is look at the, that Alcatraz um, occupation. Uh, And so this Dakota Access Pipeline, it succeeded in both bringing together more than 300 tribal nations as part of the struggle, and it succeeded in raising a lot of people's awareness, including a lot of young people, about climate justice. Considering, however, the ultimate defeat of the Dakota Access Pipeline protesters, it's sobering to remember the words of the preeminent Indian law scholar Felix Cohen, who warned that the treatment of Native Americans should be viewed in this country um, by white people as a canary in the coal mine. Most of you probably know that practice of miners taking a canary in a cage and down into a coal mine, a canary is a type of bird. I'm sure we're all on the same page. Uh, And if dangerous gases were building up in the tunnel, the gases would be fatal to the smaller canary before they would be fatal to the humans. But it was a warning, if the canary died, you needed to escape uh, immediately. So from Cohen's perspective, the treatment of Native Americans in US history is a canary in the coal mine of how we will all be treated if we don't all act together for climate justice and to decrease wealth inequality. We'll all be the barbarians at the gate of the billionaires. Uh, As one indigenous activist has written from a Native American perspective, a potential sixth mass extinction on this planet from climate change means that, quote, we're all on the reservation now. Now don't get me wrong, I've preached previously about seeking creative solutions for mitigating climate change. I don't think it's about preventing it, it's already happening, but we can not make it worse. Uh, And as we already uh, face these ongoing effects of climate change, there is significant indigenous wisdom for how might we live, how might we adapt, how might we act. After all, as historians remind us, to be a person of direct indigenous descent in the US today is to have survived a genocide of cataclysmic proportions. Some native people understand themselves as living in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. That's sort of what they already understand them. So what might that be like? Talk to a native American. Based on sheer numbers, if you look at what is estimated to be about 18 million indigenous people that were in this land when Columbus discovered it, um, if you compare that to the low point, the nadir of uh, the date of population here in the U.S. in the 1890 census, it had gone down to 228,000 people. That is a population decline of approximately 99%. Learning more about history from an indigenous perspective is both a warning, a canary in a coal mine, and a resource potentially for resistance and resilience against overwhelming odds. Along those lines of seeking signs of hope that remain despite deep trauma and betrayal. Have you ever um, had the experience of just hearing about a book over and over and over till you finally say, all right, I'm going to read it? Uh, most recently, that's been the case for me with the book Braiding Sweetgrass Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. It's by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I just kept hearing about this book over about three or four years, and it would be followed, it'd come up, and people would say, Oh, I love that book. And I'm like, All right, fine, I'll read it. Uh, It was published in 2013, and I would agree, it is a beautiful meditation on living in this world from someone who deeply loves science and deeply loves indigenous wisdom. Dr. Kimmerer is an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, as well as a distinguished teaching professor of environmental biology at SUNY, the State University of New York, and the founding director of the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment. More simply, she's a plant scientist and a poet. But for a long time, she was told, you can't be both. And for many years, she chose science for that reason. She found the field of botany fascinating, but she would also find herself captivated by plants from a poetic gaze. And on one hand, I find it useful and informative to know that the scientific classification for the Canada goldenrod is Solidago canadensis from the Aster family. I'm glad that's out there for me to know. I'm glad it's out there for me to know that this is a herbaceous perennial plant with a central stem that is two to six inches tall, that the alternate leaves are about four to six inches long and one inch wide, becoming slightly smaller toward the apex of the plant. They're lanceolate. I learned a new word, uh, shaped like the head of a lance, Lanceolate. Can I have a language of origin, right? No. Uh, uh, to broadly linear in shape, uh, spelling bee humor, anyone? All right. Uh, and usually have small teeth along the margins, otherwise the margins are smooth. The scientific description goes on at length from there. That, that may be enough for most of you. I'm, I really am grateful that information exists. On the other hand, consider this same description of that plant. If a fountain could jet bouquets of chrome yellow, dazzling arches of chrysanthemum fireworks, that would be Canada goldenrod. Each three-foot stem is a geyser of tiny gold daisies, ladylike in miniature, exuberant on moss. Where the soil is damp enough, they stand side by side with their perfect counterpart, the New England asters. Not the pale domesticates of the perennial border, that weak sauce of lavender or sky blue, but full-on royal purple that would make a violet shrink. The daisy-like fringes of purple petals surround a disk as bright as the sun at high noon, a golden-orange pool just a tantalizing shade darker than the surrounding goldenrod. Alone, each botanical is superlative. Together, the unusual effect is stunning. Purple and gold, the herald colors of the king and queen of the meadow, a regal procession in complementary colors. Dr. Kimmerer ends that poetic description with the words, I wanted to know why, though. Those two flowers exist side by side. There's still that radical scientific impulse in the midst of her poetry. And from my perspective, it's less the science and mo- more the poetry that actually makes me want to go out and sit in a field for hours and study flowers. But for me, and I suspect many others, it's the, the beauty is the initial attraction, but that also then makes me eventually want to go back and get into the science both and but kimber was told by her academic advisor if you want to study beauty go to law school he didn't want it in his lab so for many years to survive as an indigenous woman in a male-dominated world of science she chose science alone and she succeeded And by all means, science can be an incredibly powerful and transformative worldview. It works. It gives us things like this iPad that I'm preaching from, right? Like it, it works. But not long after she earned her PhD and she she received a fateful invitation to a small gathering of native elders, a Navajo woman without a day of university botany training in her life, spoke for hours and Dr. Kimmerer said, I hung, me, the PhD in botany, hung on her every word. One by one, name by name, she told of the plants in her valley, where each one lived, when it bloomed, who it liked to live near in all its relationships, who ate it, who lined their nest with its fibers, what kind of medicine it offered. She also shared the stories held by those plants, their origin myths, how they got their names, and what they have to tell us she spoke of beauty the newly minted dr kimmerer said her words were like smelling salts they woke me up to what i had known by no means did this mean she left science behind to go just study with that navajo woman but it did mean adding additional perspectives As native scholar Greg uh, Kajete has written, in indigenous ways of knowing, we understand a thing only when we understand it with at least four aspects, mind, body, emotions, and spirit. Science is one transformative way of knowing, particularly through mind. It's a powerful spotlight. And indigenous practices point us toward additional ways of knowing through the wisdom of our body our spirit, our emotions. Related to indigenous ways of experience in the world, I also appreciated Dr. Kemmerer's reflections on her experience as a young child of being required to say the Pledge of Allegiance. She grew up in US public schools. She remembers the pledge was a puzzlement to me as I assume it is for many young children. I had no earthly idea what a republic was and I was none too sure about God either. And you don't have to be an eight-year-old Indian to know that liberty and justice for all was a questionable premise. More recently, she received a call from her daughter's teacher when her daughter, too, had chosen to sit silently rather than stand and recite the pledge. Her her daughter said, Mom, I'm not going to stand there and lie. And it's not exactly liberty if they force you to do it, is it? From the mouth of babes. To give you a little more background, consider that the Pledge of Allegiance was first used in public schools on October 12, 1892, during Columbus Day observances, which is precisely the day being reframed as Indigenous Peoples Day. I'm not saying don't say the pledge if that's what your conscience leads you to do, but I am saying, as the bumper sticker says, I love this country, but I think we should start seeing other people. In that spirit, Kimmerer compares the daily recitation of the U.S. Pledge of Allegiance with the, quote, words that come before all else. It's what's recited at the beginning and end of each week in the ancestral homelands of the Onondaga Nation, where she owns a home. Significantly longer than the relatively short pledge, uh, these words are also known as the greeting and thanks to the natural world. It's a litany of gratitude for the multitudinous aspects of this wondrous earth on which we find ourselves. Kimmerer writes, imagine raising children in a culture in which gratitude is the first priority, the framing reference. She doesn't have to imagine it. It exists. It's where she lives in that nation. She says, you can't listen to the Thanksgiving address without feeling wealthy. That's what it leaves you with. And while expressing gratitude seems innocent enough, she says, consider it is a revolutionary revolutionary idea. In a consumer society, contentment is a radical proposition, being content. If you choose to read Braiding Braiding Sweetgrass, you can get a much more expansive taste for Kimmerer's perspective, as well as a much longer excerpt of the uh, the Onondaga Thanksgiving Address. For now I'll conclude with the final stanza of that address. We have now arrived at the place where we end our words. Of all the things we have named, it is not our intention to leave anything out. If something was forgotten, we leave it to each individual to send such greetings and thanks in their own way. And now our minds are one.